We're going to be starting a series, like I said in the children's story, that um, will focus on something that has been under fire for millennia. From the moment God instituted marriage and sin entered the world, uh, the enemy has been seeking to attack this institution more than anything else. Um, of course, we, we talk about the law of God and Sabbath, and that is true. But Sabbath needs humans to be kept. And without humans, there will be anything to keep, anyone to keep it. And so we're going to be focusing on something that I've been praying for for over a year and a half of doing, figuring out when to do it. And uh, before camp meeting, I realized this, is, this was going to be my next series. And so I've been reading up and studying uh, different sources. And uh, let's have a word of prayer as we initiate this series on marriage as covenant. Father, uh, help us to understand, broaden our minds. Okay, that, I find this on the web. That we can understand, Father, what it is that you want us to see in your word in regards to marriage and how to see it, Lord, as a covenant. Please lead us. Please guide us. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. We have a, in this series a, seven sermons that we will be looking at, A Marriage as a Covenant, uh, Living the Marriage Covenant, The Law of the Marriage Covenant, Covenant, Marriage, and Sex, um, How to Face Attacks on the Covenant Marriage, and Covenant Marriage and Divorce, and Covenant Marriage and Mission. Um, I've consulted, of course, other sources, primarily the scriptures, of course, but there's a book by Dr. Samuel Bakioki. You guys, some of you may know who he is. He wrote a book called The Marriage Covenant. Unfortunately, it's no longer in print. I was fortunate enough to be able to find a used copy in Amazon. And if you're into that uh, shopping there, I would recommend that you get it, actually. It's a good, good read. And uh, I've also uh, used a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. He's a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, but this book is excellent and is newer. So you can get it in a digital format if you're into that. Uh, and the reason I'm telling you about these sources is um, most marriages, most married couples have this notion that it will just work out. And they will invest money in lawnmowers. They will invest money in weed whackers. They will invest money in vacuum cleaners and uh, furniture. But they will never invest resources on their marriage. And so we see marriages languishing, like God says in his word, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. So I want to encourage you guys to invest. Um, for a long time, the first year or two, my wife and I would say, let's go to this marriage seminar. Let's go to this other workshop. We were in Bering Springs. We had so many awesome resources, but my knuckleheadedness and pride would say, man, honey, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we're tough. We'll just press on. And um, that was not the right attitude. And once I began to actually invest in my marriage, I realized how many things I had wrong about marriage. And many of us struggle in our marriages because we're simply doing it wrong. And so it's not marriage that fails us, it's us that we fail marriage. So we're gonna be looking at this series and I wanna encourage you guys to um, scrounge up your shillings and if you're able to invest, of course, um, I'm gonna be consulting the spirit of prophecy there's a book that all of us should have and read or have read or, or continue to read. It's called Adventist Home. It's a classic. And um, 
Even if your marriage is not struggling presently, just give it some time. Satan is busy. He will not leave your marriage alone. He won't. So we're going to begin looking at marriage by way of contrast because covenant is not a word that we use at all today. Um, and most of the world, even in the Middle East, where this world word uh, comes from in the Bible, it no longer is there as an existence. What well, we have are contracts. Everything has become materialistic, money, money-centered, and so business is business. And sometimes we try to transpose what is done in business into marriage. And so we have this thing called contract. And Hollywood, the Hollywood marriages of superstars, marry most of the time by this. They make prenuptial agreements, which is a contract that I love you so much, but if we get divorced, you can't have my house or my Mercedes or my bank account. Do you love me enough to marry me like, like that? Yes, of course, because you can't touch my money either. Oh, we love each other so much. That's marriage. And though we may look at the exaggeration of that manifestation of looking at marriage as a contract, we may not still understand what it means marriage as a covenant. And that's how the Bible presents marriage to be. So as a way of contrast between a co contract and a covenant, a contract engages the services of people. Covenants engage people. A covenant is not based on services. That's a contract. It's impersonal. It's about things. A covenant involves persons. Uh, contracts are made of stipulate for, a, for a stipulated time period, but covenants don't end. Once you enter into a covenant, you never leave it. And marriage needs to be approached in that sense. When you and I approach marriage as a contract, in that contract, imperceptibly, we will have added ways out. Ways in which if you violate this, I'm out. But a covenant has no such outlets once it's made. Contracts can be broken with material loss to the contracting parties, but covenants, they cannot be broken. But if they are violated, when a covenant is violated, the injury is personal. I am hurt. It's not my business. It's not my bank account. I am injured. And this is the reality of what we see across the board. We look at Hollywood. The only reason we can talk about Hollywood is because they're in the tabloids and we know they're dirt. But you and I, our marriages could be in the tabloids just as often as they are, couldn't they? Uh, George thought they were leaving today, right? <laughs> Charlotte wrote prayer requests, and George thought we're leaving today, right? The tabloids of the inquiry, inquiring minds want to know. We could be there, right? And what we begin to recognize is that they model for us how society, or they reveal to us the model in which society as a, in large is approaching marriage as a contract. Um, contracts can be broken, but the loss is personal. And I can see some of these individuals that we know of their, their dirt on their third and fourth marriage, not realizing that a piece of paper cannot protect your heart. And when you enter into marriage covenant, it's not a contract that a piece of paper now can be dissolved. A marriage covenant, when entered into and broken, affects you. It doesn't affect your bank account. It affects you. 
and we will talk more, more at length in, as in regards to divorce as we go through this series. Lastly, contracts are witnessed by people with the state as the guarantor, but covenants are witnessed by who, church? By God. That's why marriages ultimately take place where? In church. And the vows are not made to the pastor. Those vows that I take you as my beloved wife to cherish and to hold through goodness and health and sickness and health, poverty, richness, all that stuff. We're not saying that to the pastor. We're not saying that to the church. We're saying that to God. God witnesses that covenant and God becomes the guarantor. So in, in, in the instance of marriage covenant, it is not a contract. And once you marry, you need to have the mindset that you're not walking out. You can't. This is a covenant. This is not a contract. This is not about services. This is not about you fulfilling me. And if you fail to do so, then I'm out. That is not how a covenant is entered into. And so we want to begin exploring this in this series um, and developing it. And we will address the, the way God deals with the brokenness in our lives that sometimes we have to relate to divorce in the church and how God with grace and truthfulness addresses those circumstances as well. These are the three covenantal phases of every marriage that God wants us to go through. If you're thinking about getting married like Rachel in 30 or 40 years, uh, she will talk this behind her ear. And when she looks at a young man, she's going to ask herself, can I experience these three phases of covenant marriage with this young person? And for those of us that are married, it's not too late. Uh, three years into my marriage, uh, or two years, we finally went to a marriage counselor just to see how things were. And we discovered a lot about ourselves. And one of the things that I experienced was a regret, a regret that we didn't do marriage counseling sooner. One of the ideas that I've had as a pastor is that if we ever have a married couple from our church, one of the gifts that the church should give this married couple is at least six months of marriage counseling right off the bat. We, we go to marriage counseling when there are problems, well, we could go to marriage counseling to prevent those problems or at least mitigate them as much as possible. Um, but this, these are the realities of a how God wants you and I to experience marriage. And there's three phases. Um, Brian read them for us out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, Therefore, a man shall, and here's the first part, leave. A man shall leave his father and mother. The second phase is, and be joined to his wife. And the third phase is, shall become one flesh. These are the three phases that God has built into marriage in order for marriage to work, any marriage, across the globe, in any culture, no matter the age, no matter where you may find yourself, what social economic, these are the three phases of covenant that God wants every marriage to experience, and this is what makes your marriage happy, work, and thriving. Without these, there is no marriage. There's just a piece of paper with some names on it. This is covenant marriage the way God designed it, and we're gonna be exploring what this means and leaving. What does it mean when God says a man shall leave? Uh, one of the amazing things that I discovered through the study and researching of this is when God made marriage and he established these three principles within marriage, he then reveals the covenant of salvation 
and they are identical. The way God leads us through the process of being saved is the same pattern, the same parallel of marriage. Adam was asked to leave. In order to begin this covenant union with his wife, Adam had to leave. And in Genesis chapter 12, which is a major transition point in the book of Genesis, God is about to engage a man named Abraham. And he's going to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham in which he's going to take a married couple that can't have babies and is going to lead them to a point where Abraham's body is as good as dead, says the book of Romans, and Sarah's body was as good as dead as far as being able to have a child. And at that point, in the deadness of their bodies, God would bring life, uh, a child named Isaac. Later in Abraham's story, you know this, God would ask Abraham to take that child, his only child, whom he loved, and do what with Isaac? Sacrifice him. The covenant that God was about to enter with Abraham was designed to show us, to reveal to us, how God would save us through the covenant of the gospel. And the same way he engaged Abraham is the same pattern in which he places before us regarding marriage. The first thing God asked Abraham to do was to leave. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. The Old Testament covenant of salvation is an exact replica of the covenant marriage. You want to understand the gospel? Study your marriage. And study your marriage in light of the scriptures. The way God wants your marriage to function is the way God's salvation wants to function in you. This is how God uh, placed it before us so that we don't just learn it by theory, but in practice. In the New Testament, it was the exact same pattern. In Luke chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, we read, Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. <clears throat> Excuse me. From now on, you will fish for people. Jesus is about to call these disciples to reveal to them the fulfillment of this covenant in him through the cross. And how do the disciples respond to the call? They pulled their uh, boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Peter would later said, we have left our homes, we have left our parents, we have left everything to follow you. When we begin to think about marriage, we need to start thinking about the reality that we need to leave. But in regards to being able to leave in marriage, presupposes the fact that you have left also things in your life if you want to be saved. When God calls people to be saved, you have to leave your past as your past. You have to leave things that are not allowed into the covenant marriage with God. It doesn't mean that you forsake your parents. This leaving your mom and dad doesn't mean that you abandon them. Um, in the book that I mentioned to you earlier by Samuel Bakioki called The Marriage Covenant, I like how he, he summarizes this idea of how to relate to leaving your parents but not forsaking them. As adults, we assume responsibility for our parents rather than to them. Do you understand what that sentence means? That you still care for your parents, and as they get older and more fragile and more limited, you become involved in providing and supplementing for their needs. That's the ideal. But you no longer have to go to them and receive their permission to buy a house or buy a car or do things in your life, make decisions. Now that is your, you and your wife to do. And your parents 
from either party should not have that kind of authority and influence upon your home. Uh, in the series, we're going to talk about how to relate to conflict and the intervention, no matter how good, well intentioned is, but the intervention of parents into their children's marriage oftentimes make things much more complicated, make a bigger mess than if they would just let them figure it out on their own. So this leaving means detaching from feeling that I have to get mom's approval or dad's approval. I don't know why it keeps disconnecting. Um, I think I do. If there's one sermon that Satan doesn't want for the church to hear, is the one that he wants us to be most ignorant about and the one that we most suffer under with. When our marriages suffer, doesn't matter how well-funded our church may be, doesn't matter how beautiful our facilities may be, doesn't matter how busy our calendar may be, if our families are breaking and falling apart, we have nothing. And Satan knows that. And so your marriage is primal target of the enemy. So we don't have a, in this country, in this culture, we don't have this uh, element as much anymore as we used to. It's still manifested, I shared in Sabbath school, how I had to create boundaries with my mom in my marriage. She meant well, but her meaning well did not take away from the fact that it wasn't helping her marriage. Uh, she needed to say, I needed to tell my mom, the umbilical cord is off. I am married now. And the most important person in my life now is my wife. Doesn't mean that I don't love you anymore. Doesn't mean you're not important in my life anymore. But I've made a covenant with God that this woman will be the most important person in my life. Process that. Some cultures are have an easier time accepting them than others. But in some cultures, that is a struggle. And I don't know what the background may be, but parental influences don't just are present when the parents are alive. There's a lot of your mom inside of you. There's a lot of your dad inside of you. And so when God says you have to leave your mom and dad, it also means the stuff inside of you that you've inherited from your parents. Does that make sense, church? Because long after your mom and dad are gone, they're still in your head. Which leads us to a deeper understanding of what it means to leave. Leaving means a radical shift in our priorities. It means leaving past priorities based on our independence, our jobs, advanced education, sports, past lives, friends, even church work. And all of those things are influenced by the home you were raised in. All of those things were things that you learned from your parents. And maybe the things you learn from your parents don't work. Maybe the things that made your home at times a living hell are in your heart right now and they're affecting your marriage and you're oblivious to it. The way you respond, the way you snip, the way you bite, the way you hold on, the way you, you passively aggressively show a resentment over wrongs and you never talk about them, but you act on them. Those should be very familiar territory. We've seen them before. They come from your parents. So leaving your mom and dad entails way more than simply moving out of their house. It means them and the things you've learned from them that don't line up with the scriptures, they, those things need to leave your heart. Does that make sense, church? 
It means choosing to heal. Leaving the parental background. My parental background means I, 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 I want to heal. The inner wounds and hurts of our childhood. Every one of us, every single one of us, come into our marriages with scars and sometimes even wounds that have not fully healed. So whether, even if our parents may live across the state, they may be in my home in the way I respond to my wife, in the way I treat my husband. And Jesus says, if you want the marriage to be, your marriage to be a covenant marriage, you need to leave your parents out of it. The healing part is not you, and the healing part does not take place with time. The false statement of the world, the false belief that time heals all, all wounds, is a way to allow things to fester. I hope you understood what I've just said. If you've been hurt and all you do is keep silent about it and do nothing about it, all that wound is doing is festering and getting worse. Time does not heal wounds at all, period. The Bible tells us time doesn't heal wounds. You read the, 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 the uh, record of the kings. Uh, those leaving, leaving wounds alone just perpetuates them. Luke 4, 18 through 19 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. This is him talking about himself. Because he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the little girl whose dad walked out when she was little, to heal the little boy whose daddy never had time for him, to heal the abandonment, to heal the rejection, to heal the shame we may have experienced at the hand of parents who maybe that's all they've learned in their home. And that's all they could provide to their families. Many parents, especially in South America where I grew up in, many parents, many fathers thought my obligation to my family is to provide food, shelter, and clothing, and that's it. But not love, counseling, and nurturing. My dad told me that his father, my grandpa, never showed affection to him. But my father lavished affection on my brother and I. How? The gospel. The gospel. My dad learned that the Father in heaven is a tender, compassionate Father. And he realized if I want my kids to understand that part of God, I need to be nurturing and affectionate with my boys. And that was huge. That was huge. But irrespective of that, when we approach marriage, marriage, like no other relationship on earth, will reveal to you the things that were broken in your home that still linger inside of you. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't get married. It just simply means if you want to get married, you need to be willing to let Jesus heal you. Because your wife will reveal to you the areas that your buddies and your friends and even your parents never revealed about to you in your heart. But they will come out in your wife. They will come out at home. They'll come out with your children your inability to, to restrain your anger, your inability to stop screaming, your inability to just look the other way and not get involved, be aloof, stand off away, detached. All those things cannot remain in your marriage. We've learned them from our parents, and we need to leave our mother and father. Jesus is the only one that has that capacity to set us free from that. So that's leaving, and this is, of course, a very abbreviated 
version of what we're looking at as far as the covenant phases. Throughout the series, we will revisit because this is the model that will expand as we go through these seven sermons. We're going to be looking at the concept of joining. God says the first experience for covenant marriage is to leave your parents, leave your past. And it's the exact same model he used for Abraham. You've got to leave Abraham. Your parents worship idols. You will never learn what it means to worship me alone if you grew up in a home with idol, idol worshipers. You need to leave. The second part is joining. And it comes from the Hebrew word azav, which means joining. Sometimes it's translated as joining, cleaving, or clinging. And the definition from the dictionary, from the Hebrew lexicon, is that azav has the idea of something being permanently glued or permanently joined together. In the biblical language, marriage has no out. And the leaving of my parents, the leaving of those things, carry over to a joining. I separate to join. And that's why that, that, that separation is an ongoing process. You don't learn to leave what you, you learn from your parents at the altar. You learn how to leave your parents after the first year of marriage, after the honeymoon. Then is when things get serious. And the way the movies have deceived us into thinking that marriage is some romantic haven and that, that should, that's what you should be aiming for when people get married, they discover that it's not like that. Not because marriage is a bad, horrible experience. It's because marriage is a, is a le- real life experience in which you are joining yourself with someone else that as much as you, they need the grace of God. And you know that. You're not joining yourself to someone perfect. You're joining yourself into someone that is being transformed by the grace of God. And through this relationship, you will learn something about the gospel you could not have otherwise. We can learn things about the gospel from the books, and we can learn through some experiences in life, but nothing compares to the experience of marriage, and nothing satisfies the heart as the experience of marriage. So I don't want to come across as marriage is, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible. Marriage is transformative, and when marriage is approached as a covenant, it is one of the greatest sources of blessings and joy that you will have in your life. So this joining... um, concept, cleaving, clinging together, is one in which there is no option for the out. And it mimics, again, the, the covenant of salvation. Abraham became the father of Israel. And that would have never happened had Abraham not left his father's house. And now that that leaving had taken place, God had taken Israel out of Egypt. Now God says, this is how the covenant is going to be fulfilled in your life. You need to love the Lord your God that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. It's the same word. It's the same Hebrew word when God says a husband must be joined or cling or cleave to his wife. It's the same language that I must respond to God. There's a balance in the scriptures that we need to be careful to take into consideration. These commands of God were said, were spoken after God had joined themselves to the human race. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. From the woman's seed, from the woman's descendants, would come one individual, one human being, that would crush the serpent's head. Who was that individual? Jesus. Every encounter and every major engagement God had in revealing the gospel was repeating that promise 
that God would crush the serpent's head through a human being. And the implication is that God had made an agreement long before humanity was created and it was spoken in Genesis 3.15 that God would become a human being. God would cling to humanity so that humanity could once again cling to God. So in Deuteronomy, God is not asking humanity to initiate this covenant, but rather respond to it. God is revealing how he has relentlessly not abandoned the human race. When in Genesis chapter 6, God saw that every thought of the human heart and mind was only evil continually, he still preserved Noah. He did not give up on the human race. He clung to us. He was committed to us. And now he's, he invites us to respond by clinging to him. Why? Because he is our life. He is the only source of goodness and love and peace and power to do the good things we desire. That is only, can only be found in God. And so before you consider marriage, in which will entail leaving your parents and clinging to your wife, you must have had an experience in which you have left this world, your past of sin, and clung to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can fill you with the grace and the, the, through the Holy Spirit so that you can do the things that will allow your marriage to be a covenant and not a contract. Salvation is the exact same process as marriage. And if you want to get married, you must at first have experienced salvation. You need to be saved before you can get married. Does that make sense? But many people get married having gotten baptized but never converted. Baptism doesn't convert you. Jesus gives you the power to be converted. He gives you a new life. And that, that experience is legitimate when you have committed to clinging to God. And what does that mean? I want to give us a story, though it's not in the context of marriage, it is a story full of emotion. I cannot get past reading this book without getting emotionally moved, deeply moved by the story of Ruth. It's a beautiful short little story that if you have never read from the scriptures, you should take time to read it. It will teach you what clinging means. Ruth chapter 1 verses 14 and then 16 through 17 says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. This is Naomi with his, her two daughter-in-laws. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth did what? Clung. Same word. But what does it mean when Ruth clung to Naomi? Ruth replied, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Wherever you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. That's clinging. I will never leave you. And that's the clinging that is spoken in marriage. I will never leave you. And that never leaving you is contingent upon having experienced the clinging to God. And you know what I thought about in the story of Ruth when Ruth said this? It's almost like a type in which the words of Ruth becomes the words of Jesus to the human race. Have you read that psalm where it says, Lord, if I go to the highest mountain, you were there. Lord, if I go to the deepest on planet Earth, you are there. There's no place on Earth that I could go that you are not there. Have you read that song? That's the language of Ruth. In that when you are running away from God, God is following you. He's clinging to you. Wherever you go, he goes with you. 
Wherever you end up deciding to stay, He stays with you. He clings to you to save you. Ruth clung to Naomi, and through Ruth, Naomi's life was preserved. And through Ruth, Naomi's territory, land, was reclaimed. Through Jesus, you are saved. And you are not saved because one day you decided to start seeking after God. You are saved because one day you decided to finally respond to the promptings of His Spirit in your life. God is still clinging to you. Cling to Him. He is your life. And as you cling to Jesus, you'll be empowered to cling to your spouse. But without you connected with Jesus and following Him wherever He leads you and making that decision that wherever you tell me to go, Lord, I will go, without that kind of a submission to God, your marriage will not thrive. Your marriage will wilt away in monotony and formalities in which you sleep on the same bed but at opposite ends and only talk about the weather. And God doesn't want that for your marriage. Cleaving reflects the central concept of covenant fidelity. In the sight of God, cleaving means wholehearted commitment which spills over to every area of our being. Cleaving involves unswerving loyalty to one's marital partner. You don't get that with a contract. A contract has outs, and the outs are when the services are no longer being delivered. And you're married to someone that is destined to not deliver what you thought she was going to deliver or he was going to deliver. His wonderful hair is gone. Sorry. Her beautiful, youthful look is now wrinkles. Now what? The reality is that our culture is being lied in two ways, just like in the supermarkets, right? You have all these magazines that tell you the secret to lose seven pounds in seven days, and right next to them are those heavy calorie-laden candy bars, right? King size, everything, for 50 cents. Buy, buy 10 for $10. Get skinny, get fat. Which is it? What do you want? And in the movies, it tells you all romantic, romantic, romantic love, and then promiscuity and sex and debauchery and lust. Which is it? In our, in our culture, the vast majority of individuals that get married in a secular sense are thinking, finally, some legitimate sex. Sex without guilt. But you're entering it as a contract. And when the services are no longer delivered, you walk out. Covenant is not like that. Joining is a response to God. In the same way in which we begin to experience the gospel of salvation, of our salvation, it is the same exact parallel that we experience in our marriage. And it is a process. You won't get this before you're married. You won't get this the first year you're married. Just like this process of salvation lasts an entire lifetime, understanding marriage and making marriage work is something that you will have to commit to doing every single day. Some days you'll be slam dunking and doing three-pointers. Some other days you'll be hitting rims all day long. I hope you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about you playing basketball with your wife in the driveway. I'm talking about some days you'll get it and you'll see marriage for all the goodness and blessing and beauty God designed it to be. And there are days in which you will be very vulnerable to the, to the whisperings of Satan. You married the wrong one. And a covenant ignores those whisperings. That's what Jesus heard in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the whisperings of the enemy in Jesus' ears. They don't love you. 
they will never deliver the services you desire from them. Look at their track record, idolatry after idolatry for centuries. And your disciples, even Peter, three times they fell asleep. Walk away, walk away, leave them. Leave the human race to what they want. But Jesus clung to us. Jesus would not back out. He wants to teach us what a covenant is. And as you choose to cling to your wife, you will have living, experiential taste of what love is. Marriage is God's living way of experientially teaching each of you, the married couple, the gospel. You will learn the gospel in ways you never could have from a sermon through your marriage. And as you're learning about the gospel through your marriage, the, the revelation of the gospel will be given to an unbelieving world. The world will see a marriage and will see that's love like I've never seen before. That's covenant love. I understand contract marriage, but I've never seen a covenant marriage before. And we will see more of this when we look at marriage and the mission. There was a reason why Jesus joined the human race, why he clung and, and accepted his identity now as a human. Throughout the four Gospels, Jesus' most dominant uh, and most frequent identification for himself was not, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah. No, Jesus, when he talked about himself, he would call himself the Son of Man. When the Son of Man is betrayed, the Son of Man will rise up. He identified himself with the human race because he clung to us. Why? There was a purpose. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, that's Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who had lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus clung to the human race because it was the only way to save you and I. And the reason, the, the way of saving us was through him dying. So joining is a choice to die to self. In the same pattern of leaving and cleaving, leaving and joining, in the marriage context, I also need to leave so that I can join. And this joining to my wife, to my husband, demands a death to self. Just like Christ, in order to cling to the human race, had to go through the experience of the cross and death. As a husband, as a wife, you need to realize that there are parts of you that need to die. What are they? Colossians 3, 5 and 8 tells us, and 8 tells us, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And covetousness is the, the seed of adultery. Covetousness is why there are affairs. Covetousness is why there are divorces, for the most part. I found something better, and it's not you. I finally found what I was looking for, and you are the wrong one. That's covetousness, and it's a delusion. It is a big, fat lie. But now you yourself are to put off all of these. <laughs> Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do I need to die to my anger? Do I need to die to my filthy language? 
Filthy language does not just entail profanity. It involves cruelty. You're just like your father. You ended up being just like a loser like he is. You're just like your mother, bitter. Sometimes profanity is less painful than those words. Is there a need to die to myself today in my marriage? Yes, there is. And every day that you wake up, you and I as married couples are invited to be reconverted anew. How often did Paul say he had to die to self? Do you guys remember that verse from the Bible? How often did he have to die to self? Daily. I die daily. Praise God. Because that means that daily I get to experience not just the dying of these things, but joining also means being made alive in Christ. Therefore, as the elect of God, of God holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If any has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on what, church? Love. Love which is the glue that when it joins, it never separates. It's the bond of perfection. Do you want these qualities in your marriage? Praise the Lord, George. He will answer for you. Anyone else? <laughs> Listen. If this is not your experience, my marriage will become a shell. A shell that on Sabbath mornings, I'll pretend to be married. But my behavior at home is I much rather be somewhere else. Alone. Not even with someone else. That's the destiny of your marriage that Satan is aiming for. Not necessarily a divorce. He knows it's very damaging. But sometimes he just keeps people together because he loves to torture. And God, doesn't, God loves you too much to allow your marriage to degenerate to a mere formality, a contract written on a piece of paper. God wants our marriage experience to be that of a covenant. Amen. Amen. He wants you to experience that. We're going to talk about the becoming part during the week. I realized as I was making this sermon together, it was getting long. So I'm going to, if you have been able to check out the Anchor website or subscribe to the podcast devotional, I'm going to be publishing it that during the week so you can hear the last part of the sermon. But I want to close this morning looking at this one verse that will segue into this last part, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Paul is talking about the clinging. If you are in Christ, you're clinging to him. You are joined to him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. That's the leaving part. You have left the old ways. Behold, all things have become new. Leaving, cleaving, becoming. You'll begin to see that all over the scriptures. The process by which we are saved is the process by which our marriages thrive, mature, and become the blessing God intended marriage to be. You know, when God spoke and created the marriage institution before sin, it was beautiful, it was glorious, and the entire universe were going to learn things about God through Adam and Eve because they were made in His image. The power of the gospel is that in spite of the sin experience and us being affected by it, the power of the gospel will still teach the universe things about God through your marriage. Praise God. That's an amazing reality. 
The universe will understand what forgiveness is. When they look at the spouse that has discovered their companion has been unfaithful. And they have every right to walk away from that marriage. But they choose forgiveness and redemption. At a price, death to self, a cross. But in the economy of the gospel, you never have a cross without a resurrection. And you never have a death to self without a being, being made alive in Christ. So when you die to your anger, you're giving birth to meekness and gentleness and patience. When you die to covetousness, you're giving birth to contentment, gratitude, and thankfulness. All the things that make marriage a blessing and a delight. Being in Christ is an exceedingly abundant promise that offers power, healing, hope, and peace to your marriage. So the invitation and the command, more than an invitation, the command of God to all married couples is be committed to your marriage as a covenant. Allow me to examine how you've been approaching your marriage. Has it been as a contract? Because just because you don't divorce your spouse on paper doesn't mean you haven't divorced them in your heart. Long before the papers are signed, it's already happened inside. How are you approaching your marriage as a covenant or as a contract? Be committed to making your marriage a covenant marriage because through it, God will teach you the gospel of your salvation. You will understand the love of God in ways through your experience that book knowledge will never afford. Father in heaven, we have spoken through a lot of concepts that for me were new left me thinking for days, examining my own home, me as a husband, and it's affecting me, Father, for your glory. And I pray, Father, that what we have heard will not just tell us, oh, so that's what that is. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, heal our homes, heal our marriages. Help us, Father, if there's anyone here with resentment towards your spouse, whether open or hidden. There are things that need to be forgiven. Lord, empower us that as you've forgiven us in Christ, we can forgive one another. Precious Father, you see the things that happen in our homes, how vulnerable we are to the attacks of the enemy. Father, nothing will take away our choice. And today I can choose to cry out to you, empower me to leave the things that I've learned from my home. Empower me to leave my mother and father out of my marriage, even if they don't live with me. Get them out of my heart and mind, the things that are hurtful, the things that are toxic. Though not everything we may have learned from our parents is bad, Lord, they're broken people just like us. Cleanse our marriages from any influence that is preventing our marriages from thriving and being the blessing you want it to be. And teach us to cling to you, Father, to cling to you, not just to simply grab a hold of you, temporarily, sporadically, but to cling to you, Father, the way Ruth clung to Naomi through thick and thin, so that we can cling to our spouses through thick and thin. Teach us, Father, how the gospel works by teaching us how marriage works. Thank you for our spouses. Thank you for our husbands. Thank you for our wives. Thank you that, that through our covenant marriage, we will understand better how you save us. In Jesus' name. Amen.